Well, today we continue on in our Gospel of Luke consecutive expository series. Today we reach a hinge, a major transition point in Luke's Gospel. From this point on, in 51, verse 51, everything now begins to take us in a different direction. Jesus has twice, twice told his disciples that he's going to die. He did it in chapter 9, verse 22, and he did it in chapter 44. We looked at last week. But now, now the road to his destiny is getting nearer and nearer. Our scripture reading in is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Once again, remind you, this is the word of the living God. Pay careful attention to it. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he rebuked, he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word always remains. Amen. As I was saying, from this point on, Things are changing. 
we will now begin to see not none, but less miracles. Fewer extended blocks of public teaching. Up until this point, we've had a lot of both. And something else begins to dwindle in the start of this new direction. And that is lesser crowds following Jesus. As we carry on and we'll see, they will begin to diminish because of some hard sayings that Jesus will make. So, the miracles lessen, will lessen. The teaching will lessen. Even though Jesus will continue to work with his disciples, both his 12 and his 3, and as we'll see next week, the 70. Nonetheless, by and large, people will begin to drop like flies in following Jesus. As the narrative drives toward the climax of Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. That's where this verse started. When, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. What is that? That is ultimately his ascension, his return to the Father in glory. But before that, there is a stream of suffering that he will have to go through. Now, with all this in mind, Luke says something very particular. He says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, that has a psalm reference that talks about the psalmist, the suffering servant, setting his face like flint. That is what Luke is picking up on here. And he says Jesus is set his face to go to Jerusalem. This expression indicates an incredible form of resolution and abject determination to get to the place that he is going that's been appointed to him by the Father. You see, that expression is pretty, in some ways, an example, if we were to go back uh, in Roman times, many of you know of the Gallic Wars of Caesar and of Julius Caesar. And you know, ultimately, after being victorious uh, and uh, uh, conquering Vertz uh, 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 and Gedrick uh, and bringing him back to Rome, at that point in time, Caesar did not have authority to come past a certain point. That was the territory of the Senate, and no Roman army could come across that, that stream that was known as the Rubicon. And today, you hear the expression, or you look at Jeeps and Cherokee Jeeps, and 
there, there's one called the Rubicon. Why? Because it's able to forge streams and be a rugged outdoor thing. But the whole idea of the Rubicon, that's what, that's what Caesar faced. Is he or is he not going to cross the Rubicon? Because if he does, it's a whole new ball game. It's going a completely different direction. If he stays, that's one thing. But if he crosses it, it's on. It's game and it's absolute all in for the chips to win it all. And that's exactly what Caesar did. That in principle is what Jesus is doing spiritually here. He is crossing the Rubicon of now beginning to take up and move toward his destined road. And to walk that road until he finishes it and ascends and is taken up to the Father. But the cross goes before the crown. Jesus has told us that. And now he will live that from this point on. Our Lord had inflexible determination to follow the road that would take him to the cross and beyond. Now note well that Jesus, in setting his face toward Jerusalem, this was a, a very, very vicious suffering that he would undergo. But, even though he was setting his face, he knew this was going to be terribly difficult and hard, yet he knew something else. He knew something else. He set his place not only just because I've got to get ready for this terrible ordeal that is coming. He also had something else in his mind and in his heart. And that was he had complete confidence that his father will carry him through the suffering and vindicate him in glory. So he knew he was setting his face for two reasons. One, to endure the hardship and the suffering. But the other, because he knew the father had promised. And he's promised that to us as well, who are in Christ Jesus. That we will one day Follow him into glory. Now, today's outline, here it is. Beginning in verse 52. The rejection, the reaction, and the reasons. There is going to be a rejection, rejection that we've already read. Then there's a reaction on a couple on the count of a couple of Jesus' disciples. And then there are reasons for why people basically seem to be backing out on Jesus already. So, let's look at them. First of all, that is in verses 52 and 53. Now, up until this point in time, most of the action had been taking place where? Down in the south? No. Up in the north, in the region of Galilee. Most of things, these great miracles and all the things that have been happening primarily. Now, Jesus had made trips to Jerusalem already, multiple times in his life. But 
this point, all of the focus and the attention had been in the Galilee up north. But for Jesus to head from Galilee to Jerusalem in the south, you either had one or two choices. You had to take a long detour around the eastern side of the Jordan River and Basin, which was longer and took more time and in some ways more dangerous because of the mountains that you had to go through and up to Jerusalem. Either that or make a beeline. And Jesus was on a straight course. He wasn't going to deviate and he was going to go right through the fastest route through a place called Samaria. Now, <laughs> he would go through the land of the Samaritans. Now, I don't need to probably remind you that there was no love lost between uh, the Jews and these traitorous half-breeds known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans had intermarried uh, with pagan nations, and they were thus viewed as unfaithful to the nation of Israel. And so most Jews took the long way home. They went around no matter what. What the danger, they went around to stay away from crossing. But here we find Jesus heading right through the middle of Samaria. Now, this was not, um, oh, uh, also, remember, there was no quality or Hampton Inn available. <laughs> so Jesus had taken, uh, sent out some of his disciples, may have been uh, part of the larger group, could have been some of those in the 12, we don't know for sure, but he sent them out ahead to make preparations. And they went out to do that. However, they were turned away. That's the rejection. Now, think about it. This is not the first time that Jesus has married, uh, uh, um, Jesus has uh, visited the Samaritan people, is it? You remember in John, in the book of John, chapter 4? The woman at the well? And how did that end up? They received him with great welcoming. Great, incredible story in John 4. And yet here now, Jesus is being rejected. What's going on? This time, the Samaritans refused to welcome him. And I think it had all to do with the fact that he was on this beeline to Jerusalem. He wasn't stopping and taking time and, and saying, hey, remember when I, when I was here before? That was, that was a great time. No. He was on business and he would not be deterred. And also because they knew that he was going not to coming to their place and hanging around with them in their temple, that was on Mount Gerizim. Remember, they had, the Samaritans had said, well, you can make a temple. We can too. 
they have their version of it. Still, some of the remains are still there. But this time, Jesus is going to that temple they do not like. And they don't want to have anything to do with that. They knew he was going to Jerusalem, which they refused to acknowledge as the valid place of worship. It was sort of like a reverse ritual contamination. You see, that's how the Jews treated the Samaritans. They treated them like they were unclean dogs. Well, now, payback is going on in a sense. Now, it's the Samaritans having a shot to basically knock and treat the Jews like they have been treated. And so it's a kind of, like I said, reverse ritual contamination that was going on. Now, what about the reaction? As that happens here, Jesus has had the door slammed in his face. The, the rabbi, the son of man. So, in verses 54 through 56, we see this reaction. The sons of thunder, remember? <laughs> Jesus had given them that name already. James and John were not about to take the snub on their rabbi lightly. So, they, the two brothers, thought it was a perfect time to call for fire to come down from heaven and destroy the whole place. Now, don't forget, it had not been that long since they had seen two characters with Jesus up on the mountain. Who were they? Moses. Who was the other one? Elijah. And do you know what Elijah did in 2 Kings 1? The king basically sent 50 of his guys down there uh, to take care of old Elijah because he's just a troubler of Israel, always has been, every time. He never does anything that any of the kings want them to, him to do. He dis They disobey what God tells them to do through his prophet. So they said, hey, captain, get, get, your, get your guys, get, get a, 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 a 50 guys and go down there and bring me back uh, Elijah's head. How'd that work out for them? <laughs> Fire got, came down from heaven. Elijah called it down, burnt, incinerated the whole lot of them. King tried it again. Same song, second verse, same result. And on the third time, remember the other guy, when he got there, he says, uh, uh, time out, uh, truce. Um, is there any chance, uh, Mr. Elijah, that, that, that if we don't try to come grab you and haul you back, uh, that, you won't, that you won't let that fire come and consume us? And Elijah, of course, did. He, did, he, he, he let them, and he sent them back with it. And, of course, ultimately. Uh, so the point is, though, here, what? The point is, 
These guys were ready for James and John, were ready for Elijah to come or somebody like them and like, let us, let us be. We, 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 we were hanging out with Elijah just recently. Lord, give us the strength to do that. And of course, what did Jesus do? He rebuked them. He rebuked them. He didn't say, oh, guys, man, that's so sweet. He says, what are you guys, where do you, are you, he must just, I can't believe that's how you think. This is how we deal with, with lost people that need a savior like me. Don't you know that you need, needed me? What, how can you be this way with others? You see, the kind, this kind of mindset that James and John adopted was a stark contrast to the heart of the Son of Man who was sent from the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was Jesus' heart. Their passion was great, but their zeal was misguided, to say the least. But let me ask you something. Let's bring this a little bit closer to home. Have you ever been like that? Maybe not that bad, but have you ever been that with others that don't cut the mustard, that don't? measure up to your theological precision monitor that you are absolutely sure that you are superior in many ways to them. You see, <laughs> a number of us have been there and done that. I... Um, I remember uh, one time when I was in college, oh, did I have zeal? And I'd come to understand the, the sovereign grace of God and the Reformed faith, and I was just on fire. I was burning the place down. But I had so much zeal, but it wasn't always according to knowledge. And it sure didn't, I, 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 you know, I thought I knew my Bible. Well, I realized the thing I did ultimately was exactly contrary to the Bible. I basically got into a, not a fist fight, but a theological fight with an elder. When here I was, a 20-year-old wet-nosed kid. Because I was so sure I was right. And you know what? I may have been. But I was so wrong. Why? Because the scriptures are very clear. You don't speak to an elder or treat them that way. I did go back. And by the way, I did apologize and ask for forgiveness. After I cooled, cooled down. But you see, that's just one sample of that kind of thing. And and. Have, have we not, many of you probably, maybe not as bad as me, but have you not looked down? Have you not wanted to take matters into your own hands? 
we call it in theological circles, guys like me when I was that young or in, sometimes younger, older, we call it the cage Calvinist stage. The cage Calvinist stage. It means there's a time in your life where you probably should be caged. You probably should be kept out of circulation. One day you're going to make a good disciple, but you're probably not ready yet, and you are too blunt, and you're too harsh. And there are times we need to remember that. I certainly belonged to be, needed to be in one for a while. But here's the cool thing. God's not through with even cage Calvinists. He's not through. He's still, he's still working on us, just like he was on James and John. And do you know, do you know what happened? In time, these sons of thunder grew in their understanding. It took the Holy Spirit to fall upon them and open their eyes and for them to begin to remember all that Jesus had taught. It all came back by the power of the Spirit. But they grew in their understanding. And this is what is so cool. There came a time in John's life when he came again to guess where? Samaria. Did you know that? After the, the ascension, after Jesus' ascension, there came a time that he went to Samaria in an entirely different spirit. Listen to this. Acts 8, 25. Now when they had testified, this is John and Peter and others, Acts 8.25, and when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. Well, that makes sense. But wait. Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. John is growing into the apostle of love. The one who wanted to burn the house down on top of them is known as the apostle of love. Now, we saw last week, too, that doesn't mean that uh, John didn't know how to, to pull out the, the, the stick if he needed to. He knew how to rebuke, like his master. There's a place and a time for that. But he was known, his spirit was that of the apostle of love. Now, what about the reasons in verses 57 through 62? This is, Luke reveals the Lord's mind on the topic of discipleship. And in, in, do, in doing so, he kind of gives three, uh, three flashpoints or, or, or vignettes or, or whatever you want to call them. Um, as they travel on down the road of de destiny, Jesus makes it crystal clear that follow what, 
following him as a disciple will involve. At first glance, Jesus appears harsh. If you read, uh, as we read the scripture this morning, Jesus was hitting it pretty hard on these disciples. There were three of them. And in every one of them, Jesus was not handing out a, a lot of candy and a lot of jelly beans. Uh, he, he was saying it like it really is. And at first glance, he appears to be harsh and unfeeling. But Jesus wanted them to realize how radical the requirements of being his disciple really is. It was then, in a time like that, it still is in times in which we live. But many want to follow as long as there are conditions attached. Disciples are easy to get if you can put some quid pro quos on them. For instance, in this contest, let's look at the three disciples that Jesus encountered. We'll call them discipleship contestant number one. This is how it was. The first man apparently, bottom line, had a false conception of what following Jesus would entail. They thought, like a lot of people did in those times, if you were in, and again, remember they thought so much in terms of being king and, and being in power. Everybody wanted power. Everybody still does. And so when you think back then, if you got in with the, with the powerful people, you were going to get your boat floated, you know, higher and higher. You were going to end up making out well. And so this guy probably had that point. Put another way, he was naive. He didn't understand what discipleship with Jesus would mean. He anticipated material rewards. What about discipleship contestant number two? The second man wanted to wait until his father's death and disposition. Probably his father was still alive at that point in time, uh, but he wanted to not only wait till he died, but probably, we, yeah, well, let, let me take a, uh, settle the estate. Uh, I need to have time to do that, Jesus, and, th and then I'll follow you. You see, that, put another way, his family was his real ultimate priority. By the way, um, Jesus, several ways, made it very clear that blood family is not above kingdom family. That seems backward to us in this world and the way we think, but Jesus said, I come above all other comers. Jesus, Luke, uh, Matthew said it this way. Or it was Jesus that said it, but it's Matthew's account in Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Now, he's saying it's a comparison. It's not to say you, you actually need to hate your father or mother, although that is what Luke actually says later on. We're going to encounter in, verse, in chapter 14. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father. But again, it's, it's a way of saying get the order right. Whether you're saying love or hate, it's making the same point. And it's making the point that Jesus must be ultimate. He can't be side by side. He can't be down here a little bit below your other priorities to follow him, to be his disciple. You have to have your priorities straight. And then disciple contestant number three the third man wanted to go home first and then follow Jesus later. He wanted to go home uh, and, and, and think about this a little bit more. And then, Jesus, I'll, I'll probably come follow you then. You see, put another day, another way, he was hesitant. Probably searching for an excuse to turn back. But he needed a way to get out of this clean. His fervor was fading. He started with a bang, but his fervor was fading. Like Lot's wife, he didn't want to leave home. Remember her? She wanted to, she would look back. Why? She didn't really want to leave. She wanted to stay where she was. She stayed all right. Now, those who say they will follow Jesus, wherever he leads, really don't usually understand the cost of discipleship. Listen to this quote by um, Jerry, uh, Jerry White. It's his encouragement here. Ordinary people who make Simple spiritual commitments under the lordship of Jesus Christ make an extraordinary impact on their world. You don't have to be extraordinary. Ordinary people who make simple spiritual commitments under the lordship of Jesus make an extraordinary impact on their world. It's because of the Jesus and the Holy Spirit, of course. But listen, education, gifts, and abilities do not make the difference. Commitment does. Commitment does. You may not have this, that, or the other, but are you staying? Are you hanging on? Are you holding on to Jesus and following him? No turning back. No turning back. Now you see, it's interesting that Luke does not tell us the final response of these three candidates, does he? He doesn't say for sure what did maybe, what if, what if one of them said, yeah, you're right, Jesus. What was I thinking? I'm with you now and for always. 
That could have happened. Could have happened to all three. Probably suggests that it didn't. But we don't know. There could have been two out of three, which ain't bad. Perhaps, why? Why? Why did Luke leave that kind of not telling us exactly what happened? Perhaps, my friends, he wanted for us to ponder how we would have responded if we were there. And we are there today. And Luke wanted me to remind you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are poor disciples of a great Savior. But, Lord, that, that being the truth, as long as we have that great Savior, Lord, that's all we need. But help us be firm and steadfast and faithful to the end. Even when the time is hard as you were, Lord Jesus, and your days upon this earth. And you have promised to take you, take us with you where you are going. Father, you have for some of our loved ones already. And Lord, you will for us when your time is appointed. But Father, now we ask you that we might be given more grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful followers of the Lamb. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.